uh, the joy and the privilege of blessing and dedicating two children today, both Scarlett and Heath, um, Allie and Dylan's children. And so we're excited to do that. That means I have less time for the sermon today. And it's, it's helpful to have less time because we have Mary this morning. And as a Protestant, Mary is a difficult thing. Um, Mary is one because we have this, this and I'm a, a firm believer in the slippery slope. I know people say it's a logical fallacy, but um, I, I'm a firm believer in that, like you open that door and then you slide backwards into things. And yeah, on Mary, I am not. Um, on Mary, I think it's wise for us to follow what scripture says of her and who she is. Um, and it's, it's particularly good for us to do. And so it's good to have less time because you can get into less trouble. It's also a bummer to have less time because you can't bring clarity to maybe where full clarity should be. But it's great to have this text for us this morning as this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. But the question I wanted to start with is what is your soul magnifying? What is your soul making larger? And it seems like an odd question because nobody ever really talks that way anymore. But what Mary says at the beginning of her song that Sailor read for us is that my soul magnifies the Lord. In the Bible, souls do all sorts of things. They get down and low, they get dark, they can be lifted high, they can be rescued, and yet we mainly think of ourselves in this flat, sort of one-dimensional day way. But like, what is the what is the thing that your soul magnifies if you had to think about it? As Christmas is coming, you know, that's a hard question because because what does my soul magnify? Not having snow on the pass so I can visit my loved ones, maybe. Um, a, an easy flight, um, if you're younger or lucky, a gift that you know is coming or hoping is coming, um, that your soul can magnify these things. And yet what Mary says in her lowly estate is that my soul magnifies the Lord. Whenever we talk about souls, it reminds me of, of this book, Overwhelmed, where this woman is talking about how we live overwhelmed lives today and we're taxed out. And she walks into her house one day and her 11-year-old is sitting there in the chair hugging herself. And she says, what are you doing? And she says, I'm hugging my soul. I love hugging my soul. Don't you love hugging your soul? The mother didn't know what to say to that except to ponder that. What does that mean to have this ability to, to sort of draw in and hug our souls? We don't think that way. But I think what Mary's song first helps us find is what does it mean to have our souls make larger the Lord? So what happens for Mary in that is she begins to see different things, and we'll get to that. But the first thing I want to talk about this morning is this meeting of the ages that has sort of happened this year. We talked about it when we talked about Zechariah, John the Baptist's son, two weeks ago, John the Baptist last week, is that we have sort of this fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy figure, the peak of this Old Testament prophecy figure in John and his parents. Now, John's parents are, are barren. They're much older. They're beyond childbearing age. And God enables them to conceive and to have a son. This is in the pattern of what the Old Testament is and does. And so these are, sorry, this image is these strings that sort of pull together at this moment of Christ's birth. It's all these sort of Old Testament strings from what God has done and what God has said. And you could draw many more lines for all the different things that sort of make up the Old Testament. But what the point of the New Testament and what Luke is trying to make is they sort of pinnacle in the birth of Christ. They go to this one spot. So if you want to know what the fulfillment of this dream in the Old Testament looks like, you would look to this moment is sort of what he's saying. 
What does it look like in its fullness and its essence? It's in the character of Jesus and the way that he, he moves and teaches in this tradition. And that's sort of what's happening here. And so what happens is, is that Mary goes to visit Elizabeth's house. And yet this is not something that should surprise us. It's in, earlier in the story. This image, by the way, I had to put up because I found it this week. It's Mary telling the story of what happened to Luke while Luke holds the inkwell for her to write it out. And I just think medieval artists have such a, like, how do we know this is something people would ask me. Like, how do we know this happened to Mary? And the medieval artist is like, I shall paint Luke going to Mary and hearing the story while the baby Christ sits on her lap. Um, fascinating artwork. Um, but what is happening here is that Mary, too, has been visited by an angel. And the angel says to her that she, too, will bear a child. But we mostly know what Mary's response to that question is, how shall this be since I'm a virgin? And so at this pinnacle meeting of these, these two ages, this old age in which sort of it's the Old Testament and it's all coming to a point in this new age and this birth of Christ, you have the birth of an old and barren woman that's miraculous. And yet in a new thing, in a new way, you have the conception and birth of a virgin. Not the birth of a virgin, the conception of and the pregnancy of a virgin. And this sort of fits in this story as this way of, of showing both ends of the spectrum, showing both ends of what's happening here. And so we have Mary who receives this word from the angel, and she says that, may it be, I'm the Lord's servant, may your word be fulfilled when she leaves her. And before that, they, he leaves, the angel says to her that your cousin or your relative, it doesn't exactly say, Elizabeth is also a child. And so the beginning of today's story that we read, it's Mary going to Elizabeth, which wouldn't be uncommon for, for family relatives to come and help towards the end of childbirth. So Mary goes to Elizabeth, and what happens when Mary sees Elizabeth is that Elizabeth is, is, is felt in her womb John the Baptist kicking. And it causes her to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaims, Blessed are you among blessed women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the love mother of the Lord should come to me? This is what's awakened in Elizabeth when Mary comes with the inner movings in her womb, which I think is a powerful image of, of what's going on here between these two. But what I like about this is that this human-fleshed person celebrating this news with Mary opens up song for her. Opens up for her to say, my soul proclaims the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. My soul makes larger the Lord. It's this recognition in human form that brings Mary to song. It opens up space for her to sing. But I think part of the challenge as a Protestant is, is she says that she is blessed among women. And, and Mary says that all, all generations shall call me blessed. It's not something we do often. We, we claim as Protestants we're people of the book, but we want to be very clear that we're not Catholic, um, which might be helpful most of the time. But when it comes to Mary, we, we quickly jump to anything that we can have for her is maybe a bit too fast and a bit too soon, even when Scripture proclaims these mysteries for us. So my professor at seminary, who was a great mentor to me and, and maybe saved my life in more ways than one, at least as a, as a pastor, um, she wrote an essay last year that, that I had the privilege of sort of editing, and she says, as a Protestant, 
I have no trouble honoring, I, I have trouble honoring that pregnant woman, even though I'm so committed to proclaiming the gift of her son. Yet Luke gives us prophetic word that all generations would call her blessed because she agreed to carry the child. This is, this is in her dry Canadian sense, is funny. Perhaps Luke didn't know about Protestants. Just happens 1,600 years later. It is not that I do not honor other biblical figures, and this is the hard part when we get to Mary, is that if we were talking about Moses or a pivotal scene in David's life, that we would say that this is something worth emulating in human form to the extent to which these people point to Jesus, right? We never say that this person is God, but the way that these people point the way to God is worth our consideration and emulation. But, but we, we come up short with Mary sometimes. And she says, I have relative ease honoring Paul for his willingness to respond to God's call on his life. As the Lord toward Ananias, Paul is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. And with Ananias' words, the Holy Spirit came upon Paul and he began his ministering and proclaiming of Jesus as the Messiah. That she finds this challenge for us. And so what she takes seriously, I, I too take seriously, which is a fault of mine because of our relationship. But, but how is it we move into this place of, of being able to say that Mary is blessed in the way that the Bible calls us to say that Mary is blessed? That she bears for us the son, the one whose birth we herald tomorrow night, the one whose, whose kingdom we say will have no end. Where do we fit Mary into that? It's a challenging question, especially with our, our moment here in time, but it's, it's worth considering where do we do this. The, my first sort of one way of thinking about this is, is from this um, quote from Joseph Ratzinger. He says that Mary finds no place in many modern theologies. They've reduced faith to an abstraction, and an abstraction doesn't need a mother. And I think that is worth pondering, and I ponder it every year around this time, is that is the ways in which I've reduced faith to the abstraction that doesn't need a mother. See, what's amazing about this story that we often lose is that God comes to us in human flesh, and humans have mothers, and this is the way it goes, and it brings up this pondering and honor. So it brings up uh, what David read to us at the start, hailed in flesh, incarnate deity. Hailed in flesh, incarnate deity. That this is the news we celebrate this time of year. And while as Christians we do our best, often, to make it as abstract as we can, it's something that comes in the form of a baby, in the shape of something that has a mother, and something that comes amongst us. And so it becomes a challenge for us to think of what we'll say of Mary. How will we respond to this? The the, the the abstraction doesn't need a mother is something that always holds me up. Um, I'm aware of the time as we move towards the dedication. So, but there's one one thing that that I think one more thing maybe two. Uh, we'll see how I do on on time with this. Is that there are three miracles that happen here? Um, is what the, what the ancient sort of church historians say is there's three miracles that happen here. The first miracle is that a virgin is going to have a child. The second miracle is that God is going to be come in flesh in the world. And the third one, which I think is the most powerful, and they say these aren't a ranking, this is just the three miracles, is that it's enabled for humans to believe that. 
And it's enabled for humans to believe that in the same way it's enabled for Elizabeth to believe that, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the third miracle is that us and our fraught difficulty in our busy lives, overwhelmed lives, where we forget about our souls, in the times in which we don't see much good in the world, or we see so much good that it makes us blind to the challenges, that, that within this time, um, God takes residency in the world. That God comes from a virgin. And yet through this miracle of the Holy Spirit, we're unable to believe such a thing. The humans, starting with Mary and Elizabeth, Elizabeth's being the first one to sort of name Jesus as the Son of God, is, is we're enabled to believe that through the power of the Spirit. So the last thing I want to say is just make a quick comment about Mary's song, which I think we sang today. Is, it's this powerful song where Mary is able to see from a different perspective and place because of what God has done. It's almost like Mary has been relocated in time, when she's filled with the Holy Spirit when she writes this song. Now, one of the things when I learned Greek in seminary was, is I found out that I didn't know English well enough to know what a preposition was and what these things were. So it's really hard to learn a foreign language when you don't even understand the characteristics that make up your own language. Shame on my first grade teachers. Made it very hard in seminary. Probably all falls on me. But I know enough that to say this, is that what Mary proclaims in the middle of her song, is all past tense. That she pings, what, it, what exactly does it say? Is that his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the hum humble. He has fulfilled the hungry with good things, but has set the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering, remembering to be merciful. That all of Mary's things here are written in the past tense. Mary, through this filling with the Holy Spirit, is relocated to a place where she can see the fulfillment of God's works. I think what's hard for us, and we sang it in that song, uh, My Soul is Filled with Joy, um, is these truths evidently on the first level are not good news for us. Who is rich and is filled will be sent away empty. Or later in Luke's Gospel in the Sermon on the Plain, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but woe to the rich. We exist in that way as our country through no fault of our own, generally, um, through no benefit of our own, and yet that's the way it is. But I think when we sit and, and sit with Mary's song longer in her story, is that we see that her social location is one of humility and humility. <laughs> For what starts this is the interior attitudes of the heart. That the proud will be scattered in their inmost thoughts. And that rulers and the other people mentioned here are those who take advantage of others. What God does is level those things. It's also interesting that this is not vindictive in tone, right? It doesn't say, and then the poor shall rule over the rich. It just says, if you have... And God comes to give you, and you've never felt hunger. This is probably an ad for fasting in here. And you've never felt hunger. Then you go away empty. There's nothing there for you. 
And it's a challenge for us, but I think it's a worthy challenge to consider the ways in which we can lower ourselves in our abilities. We can lower ourselves in our inmost thoughts. We can't do much about the fact that that we don't struggle with lack of clean water in this country or that we uh, don't die from malaria and need malaria nets. We can't do much about that, and it's probably a good thing that we can't. Uh, You would hate to bring that upon other people. But what does it mean for us to take into our hearts this humility that Mary has as she proclaims to the angel that may it be for me as I am a servant to the Lord? It's a hard season for us to find humility. It's a hard season to find this sort of life, but it's a worthy challenge to do. So I'll finish with this this quote from T.S. Eliot, who sums this up in a way that only a poet could, this this humility, is is that it's a... it's a condition of complete simplicity, costing less, not less, than everything. The humility that Mary shows and the Mary that we're called to, and we didn't even get into the fact that she's 16 and pregnant, which we know how that is in our world, let alone imagine that in a pre-modern world, um, where you stick out and people wonder. But what Mary's humility and her willingness to do this and to take on this task, and what it calls for us as an emulation of faith, is that we would move into this condition of complete simplicity, realizing that it costs not less than everything. Let us pray. God, today we praise you for the gift of your Son. We praise you for the way that he took residency in the world. As John came before and prepared the way, comes from a barren couple. That you and your son come from the fruit of a virgin. May our hearts enthrone him. May we ponder these things in ourselves. May we be bold to say that we're servants of the Lord, that your word would be fulfilled in us. God, during this time, place us in the place of having our souls being awakened to glorifying you, rejoicing in the God, our Savior, who comes in in a meek place, in a manger that we may celebrate the state of this humility hidden in the lowliness of the moment. We ask all of this in your holy name. Amen. Now, because of the uh, dedication today, we're moving communion and confession. We're not doing a song after the sermon. So now is our moment of confession. Um, Now is our time of, of, of sort of opening up in ourselves. First, you know, for me, it's, it's confession of what does my soul magnify? That was a hard question for me to think about. It's confession of what God could maybe magnify in my life instead. That my soul, as the busyness of the season presses upon me, might be drawn into magnifying the Lord. And so we'll read this first slide, or I'll read this first slide if you would join me in reading the second. And then we'll hear the words of absolution, the forgiveness of sins that becomes proclaimed with the birth of Jesus. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In humility and faith, let us confess our sin to God. Merciful God.